Good afternoon. My name is Andrea, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Union of Concerned Scientists Telephone Press Conference on the North Korean Nuclear and Missile Threat. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, press the pound key. I would like to now turn the call over to your host, Dr. David Wright, a senior scientist of the Union of Concerned Scientists and co-director of the organization's global security program. Dr. Wright, you may begin. Uh, thank you, Andrew, and thanks for joining the call. Uh, with me today are two people who are uniquely qualified to talk about the subject and probably need no introduction to this group. Uh, Bill Perry served as Secretary of Defense under President Clinton from 1994 to 1997 uh, during the negotiation of the 1994 agreed framework with North Korea. He later served as President Clinton's Special Envoy to the North and continues to follow this uh, issue very closely. Sig Hecker is former director of uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory and expert on plutonium and nuclear weapons. He's visited North Korea seven times since 2004, as one of the few Western scientists to have visited North, Koreans, North Korea's uh, Yongbyon Nuclear Center. Uh, the issue we're addressing today is that North Korea is continuing to advance uh, both its nuclear and missile capabilities. The Trump administration seems to, at this point, understand that there are no uh, good military options for addressing that threat uh, and that sanctions alone are unlikely to solve the problem. Recently, the administration uh, seems to be showing signs uh, that it's open to pursuing negotiations. And so the purpose of this call is to try and shed some light on the role that diplomacy uh, can and we think should play in diffusing the current crisis uh, and reducing the threat. So with that, let me turn it over to Bill Perry for his opening comments. Bill? Thank you, David. I want to start off by giving you a very brief history that I've had with the, with the North Korean program. It began in 1994. It was the first crisis I faced as Secretary of Defense. It almost led to a war with North Korea. Instead, it ended up with something called the Agreed Framework, which was the result of a nego an intense negotiation uh, between the United States and North Korea. Then in 1999, we started another crisis with North Korea, and I was out of office at the time, but President Clinton asked me to go back temporarily uh, to be his envoy to North Korea, which I did. Ended up with a, bringing uh, South Korea and Japan closely into my um, study, which became to be called in South Korea the Perry Process. Uh, we went, I went to Pyongyang in, in uh, in 1999, had a very detailed meeting, made a proposal to them which had both incentives and disincentives, but it did require them to give up their nuclear program and their long-range missile program. I think we were within a few months of, of closing that deal, including um, North Koreans sending their senior military man back to Washington to kind of wrap up the negotiation. But there was a change of administration at that time, and President Bush came in office, scuttled the whole process, and for two years there were no discussions or negotiations at all with North Korea. Uh, and that ended up then in 2002 with Bush and North Korea both withdrawing from the agreed framework. I went again to North Korea in 
2004, visited the Kaesong plant, which is a joint manufacturing effort between North and South Korea. And again in 2006, was invited by the North Korea regime to come over to attend the performance of the New York Symphony in Pyongyang, which is a wonderful occasion, which I won't talk about today. Um, that history has led me to a set of beliefs. Uh, first belief is that I, the North Korea regime is ruthless and reckless, but it is not crazy. And anybody who believes they're crazy is seriously underestimating the regime and dealing with them. Second, their primary goal is sustaining the Kim dynasty, or put another way, keeping the regime in power. And they have subordinated all other goals, including economic goals, in order to achieve that goal. The de demonstration to me that they're not crazy is that from a very weak hand, which they've played very shrewdly for many decades, they have in fact kept that regime in power, while all of the other regimes originally supported by the Soviet Union were collapsing. Um, the next belief is that they have a uh, modest-sized nuclear arsenal, 10 to 20 nuclear weapons. Uh, Dr. Hecker may have more to say about that. And the purpose of that arsenal, in my belief, is to maintain the regime in power. In other words, deterrence. They also maintain the regime in power in, in, through internal threats, through a ruthless secret police. Uh, they also have a substantial arsenal of medium-range ballistic missiles, which are now operational, and they're developing an ICBM, which could be operational in several years. Based on those beliefs, I've come to judgment. The judgment, first judgment, is they will North Korea will not use the nuclear weapons in a surprise attack against the South Korea and or the United States, because they know that would lead to devastation in the country and the end of their regime, death of their leaders. So it's completely contrary to their goal. That is to say their nuclear arsenal is useful only if they do not use it, only for deterrence. If they use it, they're done. The next judgment I have is that they will respond militarily to South Korea if they have any preemptive attack. This is not Syria. There will be a response if we have a military attack against North Korea. That, that's not to say we shouldn't consider a military attack, but as we consider it, we should understand it's going to lead to a counterattack uh, directed primarily at South Korea or, or perhaps our troops in South Korea as well. The next judgment is that I believe there may be a window open for negotiation that was not open in the same way in the last through the last two administrations. The primary reason this window is now open, I believe, is because for many for a decade or two, China has been relatively unconcerned about the North Korea nuclear threat. Now they are beginning to take it much more seriously because they see it as being adverse to their core interests. They see the possibility it could lead to a war in the Korean Peninsula, and they also see a possibility it could lead to South Korea and Japan going nuclear. Either of those events would be very detrimental to their core interests, and they now are beginning to take this much more seriously. So I think because of China's interest, if we could find of any way of working together with China, 
we could put together a negotiating package which had both carrots and sticks. We have the carrots we can offer we in South Korea and Japan, and China has the sticks. We have no other sticks, really, other than, the, other than military action, which we're trying to avoid. My final judgment is that any negotiation to be successful would have to be regarded in two phases. The first phase of which is focused on reducing the nuclear dangers. Many things we can do there, like getting them to stop testing the nukes, stop testing the long-range missiles, uh, better control over the exports. And the second phase, then, could be focused over a longer term on the reduction of the nuclear arsenal, eventually leading to a nuclear-free peninsula. That's, those are my opening comments. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me turn it over to uh, Sig Hecker. Thank you very much, uh, David. Uh, Dr. Perry has given you uh, a very uh, nice and comprehensive view uh, of the situation uh, since 1994. Uh, let me try to sort of uh, fill in uh, some additional information uh, based mostly uh, on my own experience and my visits uh, to North Korea. And particularly to try to fill in, uh, let me say, in terms of what does North Korea have? How did they get it? When did they get it? And why did they get it? And I happen to think that's actually very important. And it's covered rather little in the news media today. So let me back up and start with what do they have? The most important aspect that we track is whether they can make the bomb fuel. And that's either plutonium or highly enriched uranium. It turns out we have a very good handle on the plutonium uh, because a number of people have actually been in to see the reactor. We know everything about that reactor. And from overhead imagery, from satellite imagery, you actually know when it's operating. Uh, and so we believe, I believe, North Korea has somewhere between 20 and 40 kilograms of plutonium uh, today uh, in the neighborhood uh, of four to eight bombs worth. A highly enriched uranium, the most important aspect of that is to understand how uncertain our estimates are of highly enriched uranium. It turns out the only view that any outsiders have ever had of the centrifuge facility is when my Stanford colleagues and I were invited to see the new centrifuge facility in November of 2010. And that visit was incredibly early. But based on that visit, and then also on a lot of uh, other sort of circumstantial evidence, including overhead imagery, but the problem is you can't see inside the building. Centrifuge facilities are very easily hidden. And so for the most part, uh, we have to do the best we can estimate. And that is just not very good today. So my current estimates is they have somewhere between 200 uh, and perhaps 450 kilograms of highly enriched uranium. You put that together with plutonium, and that would mean they may have enough of the bomb fuel, the fissile materials, for perhaps 20 to 25 uh, nuclear weapons today. Uh, and as you've already uh, heard, they have a substantial uh, missile capability, especially in the 30-some launches that they've conducted in 2016 and now. 
uh, although a major fraction of those have actually failed, but nevertheless, uh, they most likely have the ability to reach uh, all of South Korea and Japan. As far as actually building weapons, we know even less for, than for the highly enriched uranium, except the bottom line of that is we know they've done five nuclear tests. And the last two or three of those nuclear tests are on the explosive destruction power over Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And so, again, we must assume that they can put, they've been able to make enough advance in the five tests over 10 years that they can miniaturize a nuclear warhead sufficiently uh, to go on those missiles that can reach South Korea and Japan. Now, let me turn to how did they get it? Uh, and for the most part, even though initially they got some help from the Soviets in terms of the Soviet atoms for peace, uh, and then they used sort of a leaky international export control system uh, to acquire some of the key materials, especially for centrifuges. But for the most part, they've done this themselves. So they built the facilities, they've built the bombs. When did they do it? Well, they've had a program for 50 years or so, but what's particularly disconcerting since around 2003, that's when we believe they built the first bombs, and then particularly since 2009 or 10, what they've done is not just build a few bombs, but build what looks to be a considerable nuclear arsenal, one that threatens uh, the Korean Peninsula and all of East uh, Asia. Now, why did they do it? Uh, Dr. Perry has already given you uh, reasons for regime survival, for domestic reasons. It's also a matter, I'm sure, of international prestige. But my biggest concern is that the what and the why are actually closely connected. In other words, they're interdependent. And so my principal concern, and I'm going to address that in the remaining few minutes, uh, is that because they've been able to make advance in their nuclear capabilities, that perhaps today they're actually thinking beyond just deterrence. And that is particularly, they may be thinking uh, in terms uh, of looking at uh, both military and diplomatic coercion. They uh, may view those nuclear weapons uh, for being able to terminate the conventional conflict advantage. And then I'm particularly concerned about what happens to the security and safety of those nuclear weapons in case you have turmoil inside of North Korea. So I view the current North Korean situation as being a crisis now. And so my main recommendation to the Trump administration is, of course, it's important to have negotiations. But right now, the most important element is actually send the presidential envoy, talk to them to reduce the tensions, and to make certain that we do everything we can to avoid a nuclear use uh, on the Korean Peninsula. So whereas previous presidents faced, how do we avoid them getting nuclear weapon with President Trump faces, how do we avoid having them use a nuclear weapon? Having those sort of discussions then may actually lay the groundwork for the type of negotiation that Dr. Perry discussed. Uh, let me leave it here, and of course, I'll be happy to follow up on any of those aspects. 
Okay, thank you. Um, before we move on to questions, I wanted to make a few additional comments about North Korea's missile program. Uh, I've been following the program since the early 1990s, and obviously what we've seen is that despite sanctions, uh, it's been able to continue to improve its missile capability, and especially in, in recent years. Uh, the North now has something like eight types of missiles either deployed or in development, as well as a satellite launcher. Uh, fortunately, it does not yet have a long-range missile that can carry a nuclear warhead, but we're seeing it working on pieces that could be useful for developing a long-range missile. And if that development continues, I think there's little doubt that it will eventually uh, produce such a missile. So far, North Korea's longest-range operational missile is the Nodong, which has a range of only about 1,300 kilometers. It's working on the Musadon, which uses uh, more advanced technology than its older, older Scud-based missiles, but it's been having technical problems with only one successful flight test out of about eight so far. So that, that program has not been going well. And what that means is that uh, there's a window for trying to stop uh, further progress on its missile uh, program. And I think the U.S. really needs to try and take advantage of that window now and, and capture this uh, situation. And in particular, North Korea won't be able to develop new missiles without flight testing. So that negotiations that uh, were accompanied by a freeze on flight testing would block its path to these longer range missiles. Uh, and the good thing is that a freeze would be completely verifiable by U.S. early warning satellites. Now, obviously, nobody, nobody knows whether North Korea would agree to a freeze, but I don't see how else to, to stop its progress uh, under business as usual. This window won't last forever, and so my uh, uh, feeling is that the United States should really be trying to figure out how to uh, get a freeze uh, in place, to, if it's possible, and especially to see whether it's possible to enlist uh, China to help that happen. So at this point, let's open up for questions. Uh, Andrew, do you want to remind people how to get a cue in uh, to ask a question? Yes, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star. Send number one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. And your first question comes from the line of David Sanger with New York Times. Uh, thanks very much um, to both of you for doing this. Um, a, a slight difference uh, that I heard, I thought, between um, – what you your assessment, Bill, and and Zig uh, on yours, Bill, you said you thought this was only for deterrent possibilities, and Zig, you said it had been a deterrent, but they may actually be considering the use of the arsenal now for either coercive diplomacy or coercive military steps. That's a little bit different, and I realize it goes to regime intent, but I wonder if the, if the two of you can just play that out. And then just on, a, on the, uh, the technical issue uh, that is out there, um, so is it your judgment, I think it is from what you said, that the, the weapons that can now reach, the missiles that can now reach South Korea and Japan, do we believe that they have shrunk the uh, warheads enough, as U.S. intelligence seems to suggest, uh, so that they can, so that the missiles that could reach Japan and, and South Korea could be nuclear armed, and w what does that tell you about the ICBM shrinkage as well? Perhaps let me let me take the uh, second the technical question first, and then I'll turn it over uh, to Terry. Uh, 
as as I indicated, you know, we know even less about warhead development than we know uranium. Uh, but as you also know, uh, you know, the uh, the North Koreans have actually uh, shown what was called the disco ball by some uh, of a of a warhead that appears to be about 60 centimeters. The message, I think, there was one that, look, we have one small enough. Uh, I believe that with those five tests uh, uh, sp uh, over a span of 10 years, we simply have to assume that they can put one on a on a nodong uh, or certainly on a scud. Uh, so yes, you think the I disco think the ball was for real then. It was not just a mock up. Well, well, first of all, you know, was at best a mock up. I I still have some serious questions about some of the specific features on that particular ball. Uh, you know, it's a very strange thing for any country to provide that sort of detail. So. Uh, no, I, I'm not absolutely sure that it's more, uh, that it is even a real mock-up. Uh, but nevertheless, the message was we have one small enough. And I think we simply have to assume uh, that that uh, is true. So I do believe they have that capability. For an ICBM, uh, you have uh, the additional problems, of course, uh, significantly smaller yet, lighter yet. Uh, and then it has the additional difficulties uh, of having to withstand the sort of stresses, uh, the temperatures, you know, of a, of a re-entry for a long-range missile, uh, that just simply takes more work. I do not see how they could have gotten to a, an ICBM-compatible warhead today without more both nuclear testing and missile testing. Uh, so let me turn. Let me, answer, let me answer the other part of your question. Dick may want to comment on this as well. Uh, my point was I do not believe the planning a surprise attack, an attack without provocation. But, but I believe it's still very dangerous. They could, they can use these and will use these, I believe, in the coercive role. They have, there's been certainly no shortage of uh, threats and bluster about their intent to use them. I think that is bluster, but nevertheless, that becomes a part of a coercive role. But most importantly, I think there's a danger that they will overplay their hand, their uh, bluster hand, and they may actually blunder into some kind of a war. So I do think it's a dangerous situation. I do not think they're planning a surprise attack. They are certainly doing a lot of bluster and a lot of threats, and they might misplay that hand and blunder into a war. So let, let me just uh, add uh, my two cents worth on that. So uh, that's exactly uh, my sense. They, they're not going to actually be planning uh, to go ahead and attack, but backing into it is is what's my concern. But I'd just like to add this other concern. You know, having had a lot to do with nuclear weapons uh, in my past life, I'm concerned about the safety of those nuclear weapons. And the closer they get them, to being ready and be used, the less safe they are. And they may have done a few tests to be able to miniaturize, but they have they done enough tests and focused on the safety. And even a nuclear weapon blowing up in North Korea is a bad, bad situation for the entire world. And then if you just go beyond that and you say, well, suppose there is regime change within North Korea, by whatever mechanism, who gets to keep the weapons? You know, what about the security and safety of those weapons? 
So that's what makes me sufficiently concerned to say there has to be a discussion now, and that discussion is let's make sure a nuclear weapon doesn't blow up. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star. Then the number one on your telephone keypad. Your next question comes from the line of Elizabeth Shem with UPI. Hi, uh, my name is Elizabeth. I'm with United Press International. Thank you for taking the time out to speak to us. Um, I had a question for uh, Mr. Hecker regarding his statement about uh, the timeline of uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons program. Uh, you said the um, North Korea's program entered a definite new phase in 2003 with its first bomb, and then by 2010 had built a considerable nuclear arsenal. My question is, um, wouldn't it help for uh, the United States to see this development of weapons alongside uh, development of uh, domestic changes in the country? Um, so uh, what, I'm, what I'm asking is, the, the, the weapons and the development of weapons has come about at a time of you know, incredible changes in North Korea domestically. Uh, there are hundreds of marketplaces now. And the, the regime is, um, is becoming the uh, target of, of domestic skepticism. So um, instead of seeing this, uh, the weapons development as, um, as a source of threat to the United States, can we also not see it as a source of uh, North Korea's um, pursuit of legitimacy in the eyes of its own people. Thank you. Okay. Uh, uh, first of all, a very, very good question. Uh, let me uh, just make sure to clarify uh, sort of the time scale. So first of all, 2003 is, we believe, when they first went ahead and built the bomb. Uh, however, by 2009, they still had what I would call a very primitive arsenal, perhaps a handful of the centrifuge facility, which I was showing, and marked the start of the highly enriched uranium part of the program. And it marked the start of the increase in the arsenal. So the menacing arsenal was built between 2010 and 2016, not before, uh, not by 2010. In terms of linking it to the domestic issues, uh, what is very interesting, my, my own view uh, is the following, the 2003 to 2008, there still seemed to be quite a bit of interest, and certainly based on my visits, I visited there every year between 2004 and 2010, there seemed to be an interest, still a, a serious interest in, in dialogue. And then somewhere around 2009, is when I believe the North Koreans made the decision that they're going to go all out and ramp up their nuclear weapons program. And as part of that, in 2010, they showed me the centrifuge facility because that message to the United States was, look, uh, we now have the second path to the bomb, and it's a path that you can't track. You'll never know how much we have. For plutonium, we not only knew they had very little, but they had little capacity to do more. I should have said the joint capacity for plutonium and highly enriched uranium today is probably a bomb maybe six or seven weeks. And so in terms of tying it to domestic things, the real ramp up came around 2009, 2010, and then has continued uh, you know, significantly since then 
including they finally got ready for the missile test in 2016 and now in 17. And I think the tie to the domestic issues is very important because before 2003, there was never any, at least nothing that I know of that was shared with the North Korean public about them building a bomb. In 2005, you saw the first of it. Then once they tested in 2006, and then particularly from there on, the nuclear weapons program, as Dr. Perry pointed out, was also used domestically, uh, both you know, in order to justify the regime uh, having to protect its people, and then also to justify the fact that those poor people have to continue to sacrifice. Thank you. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Your next question comes from the line of Matt Spedelnik with Reuters. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, thank you again for this. Um, so uh, both of you gentlemen have talked about the need for moving to negotiations. I heard talk about a window of opportunity, uh, but the Trump administration seems to be um, relying more on so threatening talk, tough, tough words, and doesn't appear to be showing a lot of interest in, in uh, going to diplomacy in uh, either a direct or multilateral way. Um, does uh, do you see this administration taking any um, moves to lower the, the temperature a bit and and maybe moving in the direction of negotiations? And if so, how would they how would they go about that? Bill, I'll leave it to you to start. Uh, I don't truly know what the plan or the intention of the administration is, and I will not pretend then to be able to answer that question directly. It's quite possible that some of our bluster and some of our strong language and, and, uh, might just be a foreplay to a negotiation, and that's putting ourselves in a, in a strong position for going into negotiation. That's a possibility, but I cannot say with any confidence that that is what the administration is planning. Dick, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I guess the point that I would add is that it's certainly making the world very nervous. Uh, and and so it, it may make the North Korean regime nervous, but it's making the world nervous. And that's one of the reasons why I think uh, if the Trump administration sends someone in to talk to, to Kim Jong-un, uh, that that would help. Uh, to sort of help to relieve some of the anxiety uh, of a very nervous world. So it is important to, to make that entree first and then eventually get back to negotiations. I, I should say, even though I've um, you know recommended the initial foray would be the U.S. And, and North Korea, because it's quite clear from what I've seen, North Korea is interested in talking mostly to the United States. Uh, any future negotiation will have to go back multilateral. Not only do you need China, but you certainly need South Korea. I'll leave it there. Uh, next question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. And at this time, there are no further questions. Uh, so I have a question that came in from um, Radio Free Europe. 
asking about the reports that Russia had blocked UN condemnation of uh, North Korea's missile test last weekend, uh, and asking if, uh, if you had any insight into that, either either uh, either one of you. I do not. Do you think? Yeah, this is Sig I also uh, do not. Okay. David, do you have any insight on that yourself? No, I uh, I had I don't know anything about the uh, about the uh, back discussion on that. I, in fact, I had not heard this before I saw this question. Right, so I'm afraid we we can't answer that one. So, do we have anyone else in the queue? And again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. You do have a question from the line of Bill Broad with the New York Times. Uh, thank you all. And um, David, this is, I guess, for you. Um, you know, we saw so many new rockets and tubes and things on the uh the the parade on last saturday and a lot of it seemed like it was um relating to solids especially my understanding is that if you, if you you know do cold launches uh as they seem to be implying with these big icbm type carriers um they've got to be solids is that right or w what do you make of of what seems like a sort of turn in the road that they're making in terms of rocket propulsion uh, I've certainly been scratching my head about that. There were two large canisters that we saw in the in the parade. One of them seemed to be about the right size for the uh, what's either been called the Can 08 Mod 2 or the Can 14, uh, which is liquid fueled. Uh, the issue there may be that um, the the fuels that we think they're going to use on that, which is probably UDMH and nitro, uh, nitrogen tetroxide, uh, are much more temperature sensitive than the old uh, Scud fuels. Uh, and so it's possible that this is intended as a temperature-controlled environment to to move the missile around so that when it's it's filled on site with propellant, that the you know that the temperature is controlled. So uh, we don't know. That's one guess for that. The other one did look uh, from its size like it was um, you know something on the order of a of a large uh, solid-fueled ICBM. Uh, and then it's interesting to go back and ask, you know, is that something that, that they're actually uh, in the midst of developing? They've, what we've seen them test at this point is uh, the, the longest-range solids are the, the uh, missile that they launched from a, a uh, submarine and its counterpart that was, that was land-based, which seemed to have a range of about 12, 1,200 1, kilometers, so their medium range. Uh, and then it's interesting to go back and look at the history of other countries trying to scale up their uh, solid motors from things for medium range to long range. Uh, and, it, you know, that, that scaling up is on the order of decades. If you look at China, it took them about 20 years. Uh, if you look at the French program, it took them about 40 years. And this was after uh, people basically knew how to do this. So there's a lot of, of, of technical issues. So my takeaway from that was that they may well be thinking about it. It's it's clearly where you'd like to go if you're getting or seriously getting into the missile business, but that uh, the time scale on them actually getting there, even from the point of having uh, medium-range solids, is going to be decades rather than years. 
Thank you. David, if, uh, if I may add to that, you know, one of the things that, that always strikes me as we talk about the missiles and the capabilities, and particularly now, as you've indicated, like in the Musudan, uh, the solids were one out of eight or nine had failed. Uh, so it's one thing to go ahead and test launch a missile. It's something else to have a nuclear warhead on top of that missile and have it blow up. So it's it's not only that the missile sort of has to function, but you really have to make sure you can get that out of your territory. So just you know, my additional concern when it comes to putting nuclear weapons on top of missiles. Well, and that's one of the reasons that I've seen some um, sites that have called the Musadan as as uh, as deployed and operational, and I, I think that just you know one one successful flight test out of eight doesn't put it in that category. Right. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Again, that's star, then the number one on your telephone keypad if you wish to ask a question. Your next question comes from the line of David Drumstrom. What rooters? Yeah, hi. Um, yeah, thanks again to all of you for this. Um, I just wanted to um, uh, ask David um, uh, that your last point there. Were you saying that you still think that the, uh, the North Koreans are decades away from having an operational ICBM? Uh, no, let me clarify that. I think they're decades away from having an operational uh, solid-fueled ICBM. Uh, if you ask the question of, you know, the other, so the other route that they're going at this point appears to be trying to have a, a transportable liquid-fueled uh, missile, uh, and that's basically this CAN-08, CAN-14. Uh, that looks to me something that, you know, again, depending, uh, to, to make that work, they really need to switch over to something beyond SCUD uh, uh, technology and fuels, and that's what we're seeing them work on in the Musadon. There seem to be tech technical problems with that. Uh, even once they sort of work that out and, and get those engines working and figure it out, uh, I think we're still talking about, you know, a, a number of years before they can uh, put it together in a, a long-range liquid uh, missile. So I think, that's, I think that development is probably on the, on the order of years. It's really going to a, a solid-fueled ICBM that's on the order of decades. The advantage of that is that, uh, obviously, is that if you have a solid-fueled, it's truly mobile in the sense that you have, uh, once you get to a point uh, to launch it, you can launch it very quickly, whereas with a large liquid-fueled uh, missile, you have to transport it without the fuel in it, and that means you get it to a launch site, you have to uh, put it vertically, uh, fill it with, with propellant, and that whole process can take an hour or two. Thank you. Um, on, on that uh, point about the liquid fuel, you, know, you say years, but can you be a bit more specific in terms of the numbers? I mean, is it possible within this um, uh, administration? This, you know, it, it would be pure guesswork. I mean, for one thing, uh, it's been a little surprising to me that they've had such trouble getting the Musadon to work. And I know there's uh, that may be uh, technical issues uh, with the Musadon itself. Uh, Bill Broad and David Sanger have written about this uh, 
possibility that it may be due to uh, uh, hacking of some of the control systems of it. We don't know what the problem with that is, but until they get this shorter-range missile to work with this new technology, uh, it's really difficult to sort of look ahead and say, uh, you know, how long would it take them to scale it up. We have seen a, a ground test of a somewhat larger engine using these new propellants uh, that seem to have been successful, but we, again, all we have is a picture from the North Koreans that show a plume coming out of the back of it, uh, and we don't really uh, know enough about it to, to even sort of have a reasonable timeline going forward. Thank you. And again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. That's star, then the number one if you wish to ask a question. Your next question comes from the line of King Yang with Radio Free Asia. Um, can I talk now? Yes, yes go ahead. Mm -hmm. Hi. Uh, there, I have read that um, North Korea uh, might be using ICBM as uh, a way to negotiate. Rather than giving up nuclear weapons program entirely, it is uh, uh, using it as a leverage so that it can give up ICBM but still keep uh, other mid medium or short-range missiles. So what do you think about that uh, report from the experts? Well, that's yeah. missile related, yeah, but I'll I'll let the people know about the negotiations talk about that. Okay, Bill, Bill or, do you want to cover that first? Well, let me this is a hacker. Let me just put my uh, two cents worth in um I I personally believe that we've seen far too much focus uh, that the crisis for the U.S. would come when they can reach the mainland U.S. with a nuclear-tipped missile. I happen to believe the crisis is here now for all those reasons that I mentioned earlier. What we need to do is to avoid a nuclear detonation on the Korean Peninsula. So if indeed the ICPM would be used and traded off and they keep what they have now, which is what's already causing the crisis, that would not be a good deal. Thank you. I, I would just add to that that I think that uh, if, in the future of the negotiations, uh, obviously the interests of South Korea and Japan are going to have to be uh, taken into account very seriously. And, uh, and uh, North Korea has short-range missiles that can reach both of those countries. And so I think that the, the kind of uh, trade-off you're talking about would probably be a non-starter. Thank you. And again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star. Then the number one on your telephone keypad. That star, then the number one on your telephone keypad if you wish to ask a question. And at this time, there are no further questions, sir. Would you like to have closing remarks at this time? Well, if there are no further questions, uh, just wanted to thank you for um, for joining us. Um, thank our speakers for taking part. 
We'll have a recording of this uh, event shortly, uh, and if you'd like a copy, uh, please contact us, and we'll send you a link where you can download it. So again, thank you for taking part, and uh, let us know if you'd like a copy of that recording. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This does conclude today's conference. You may now disconnect.